I can't shoot straight unless I've had a pint. Oh, there's me drink. Get in my belly! Welcome back to Reforged Radio, Episode 3, where we're going to be heading back in time a little bit. To the days of 2002, to Warcraft 3, Reign of Chaos, and Frozen Throne release, and what that was like in the early 2000s. Jason, are you ready to go down memory lane? I kind of already live there, so I'm always I'm always ready to return, and um, yeah, these were... These were heady times. The industry was a lot different. The audience was a lot different. It was a lot smaller. Um, and I think it's it's important to kind of keep this stuff in mind, to contextualize the industry and the state of the hobby that Warcraft 3 was released into. You know, it was, it was a much different way that we bought games and played them and the games were sold and... Um, it's kind of crazy to think about some of the stuff that we were doing and playing at the time that Warcraft three initially came out and um, how sort of, I, I mean, I, for me, I think the Warcraft three experience has stood the test of time. It's a game I'd love to revisit every, every year or every few years and replay through. And uh, obviously I'm in the middle of a, of a playthrough now that reforged is here and I'm finding it just as fun and, and rewarding as previous campaign playthroughs. And I, you may not be able to say that about a lot of the media that we were into, um, you know, or that was very popular back at the time these games were released. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the year that was head into what Warcraft 3 actually meant as like a release and what sort of things were new, different or even bad about it. And then we've got some juicy old reviews from websites that existed at the time. Yeah, their games don't exist in a bubble, right? Like, even though they sort of, they have very established fiction and they have very realized worlds when it comes to, at this point, their four tentpole franchises. There's always winks and nods. These things are, are born from other media and other things that the the people making the games enjoy. And, you know, from the beginning they were always kind of happy to uh, throw in in jokes and, and, and make kind of nods referencing that stuff. And uh, I mean, Warcraft three is certainly no exception. I think it was one of the games where they s sort of brought that stuff forward a little bit more because, you know, as you move through into like Starcraft and brood war and Warcraft three, they had more room to do it, right? The tech was improving rapidly. They could tell better stories. They could inject more personality into the games. And so I think you saw a lot more of it start to happen when we get to Reign of Chaos, for example. And it really shows what sort of world we're talking about when we look at the year 2000 and a video game being announced at a computer trade show, in this case, the European trade show. It was a rather big deal. They were going to lead with a 3D engine with complete, and I quote, polygonal characters and environments. Yeah, which sounds rather quaint in 2020, <laughs> right? Uh, you pretty much expect that from most video games that you would purchase. But um, this was a big deal. This was Blizzard's first 3D game ever. Um, and 3D games, its uh, that's a tricky jump to make the leap from, from 2D to 3D. And um, you can, if you, if you search, you can find 
interviews and and some maybe apocryphal stuff with with the team that worked on Warcraft three and kind of talking about what that was like making that jump to going from you know two d sprites that you are placing into the game world to these three these fully three d characters that have to like actually look good and work and animate from any angle uh yeah that's a bit of a jump but also i mean off the top of my head i can't remember but warcraft 3 was if if not the first fully 3d rts it was one of the early ones and these are the days when rts was the king of pc gaming it was you know it was the hot multiplayer genre it was what everybody wanted a piece of in the late 90s early 2000s you know sort of in advance of of like everquest exploding and mmorpgs sort of becoming their own their own thing you know they sort of they sort of stole rts's thunder at that point in time so you know warcraft 3 was kind of the tail end of that and you know we're, i'm thinking of like the old uh, Westwood games, not that they weren't fun games, but you know, like you're talking 2d graphics and the full motion video cutscenes and everything like that. Um, it seems really quaint in, in a modern context, you know, we, we haven't had Warcraft three blew all those types of games away. Like that was the end of that whole era. Once Warcraft three came out, you weren't doing the, you know, Sprite based, uh, a 2D isometric RTS with the full motion video cutscenes ever again after Reign of Chaos came out. When it was announced, it was titled as the upcoming RPS role playing strategy, which threw quite a few people for a loop. And it's tough to imagine Warcraft 3 not as it existed or even being surprising. I was 15 at the time this was going down. And this was being announced. So I was reading about it in magazines and whatnot. It didn't phase me because the world was so full of video games at the moment. Yeah, I um, I was I must have been about. I guess when when the hype machine started spinning up for Warcraft three, I was probably about nineteen or twenty, and um, I was I was not a huge RTS fan, but I really loved tactics games, like turn based. Uh, you know, tactics, JRPG type games uh, and, you know, traditional like single player RPGs, like, uh, you know, the fantasy star series and, you know, sure. final fantasy chrono trigger, that kind of stuff. And so I, I thought, well, I could never really get the hang of what was cool about RTS. It just seemed like way too much going on, but I, I can see by the way, they're selling this game already. And, and just looking at these screenshots, like, okay, these are your hero units. These are the big, powerful, units that you can you know you want to focus on and i thought there was something really cool about that um i remember when i was when i was in my teens and early 20s i worked in video game retail and so i was you know in the store every day in the lead up to warcraft 3 being released and the whole hype and marketing cycle the magazine pieces covering the trade shows and you know, the several uh, beefy delays <laughs> that Warcraft 3, believe it or not, didn't come out on time. Um, and I, I remember all those things and, and kind of just like I, it, PC gaming was it was a little more niche, I want to say, than than it is these days. You know, this was pre steam and it was 
the the con the games market was totally dominated by console games, and that's pretty much all there was in the U.S. You know, there there was some uh, obviously PC games had a foothold, but it was always more of a hobbyist market. So the the PC gaming press and like when the when the PC gaming mags would come in for the month. You know, they have these breathless previews, and if they could get three new screenshots from Blizzard of Warcraft Three, it was like front page news. You know, and um, <laughs> I I remember like one of the th- one of the marketing materials they used to sell Warcraft Three in the lead up to you know pre orders opening and the game coming out was the cinematic where Arthas returns to Lordaeron from Northrend and slays Terranus. That was one of the things that was on the VHS tape <laughs> once a month. I, I worked for Electronics Boutique back in the day. Oh, nice. And once a month, a home office would send a UPS box to the store, and it would include the marketing materials for the month. And it would have a VHS tape, and we had a VCR in the store. And you had to play all day long. On It was like a 20 or 30-minute loop of all, you know, two or three minutes worth of whatever games were being marketed that month. And um, for... Quite a while in 2001 and 2002, uh, the Warcraft 3 trailer was on there and it heavily featured the cinematic and that thing would stop traffic. Nothing looked like that did in 2001 and 2002. People would come in from the mall concourse to walk into the video game store and stare agape at the big screen TV at the computer graphics on it and go, what is that game? Um that and that was a trippy experience. Like I don't, I, I can't remember too many other cases. I worked in games retail for quite a few years, and I don't really remember too many other games that grabbed those kind of eyeballs. Which is even more surprising, considering that it was a PC only game, and that you know RTS is just weird. It's it's not Super Mario Brothers, you know. It's not really pick up and play. So, but I'll, I'll never I'll never forget the marketing for the game and and the way that people responded to it. You know, it was. People had their their calendar circled for uh, for Reign of Chaos for sure. Well, and we were in the grips of the console wars, and they were ongoing, and they were savage. We had just come out of basically two Christmases of Xbox, GameCube, PlayStation lead up that led to some of the best console games that ever were made. But this is still in two thousand, where we are, and I have a quote here, and it's lovely. A live chat night with Brian Love. This is a promotion for Warcraft 3, so people can ask their questions about the upcoming game. And the top of the article says, make sure your browser is Java-enabled so you can participate. They also advertised that they had found on IGN a Korean site that featured a 90-second clip from the upcoming game, and you can download it. But be warned, it is 6.5 megabytes. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, this is why they were leaning on magazines to market the game and VHS tapes, right? But the this was the pre-social internet. Um, broadband was scarce. I mean, I, I think I had a broadband connection by like 2001 or certainly by the time Rain came out. But, you know, it was, it was relatively primitive. I was probably getting like 15 megs down. It's like, oh, dude, I got blazing fast. Broadband <laughs> um, yeah, it was that was just the era that it was in, you know. Yeah, you had to have like a, a Java plugin for your browser so you could do a, a web-based, uh, you know, live live chat. And I was um, reckoning on that CompuServe internet I got from my parents. Yeah, 
it, it was good times. But you brought up the delays and there were two full blown delays. Yeah. You know, the game didn't end up releasing until July 3rd, 2002, um, which is kind of kind of a, a bit of a quirky thing. But this was old school Blizzard, which is I mean, they would release games in, you know, on New Year's Eve. It, it, it didn't <laughs> they didn't really care about what the release date was. It wasn't part of some, you know, broader marketing package. So, you know, right before a, a holiday in the States, like Independence Day, maybe a little bit weird to drop the game. But um, yeah, you, you know, th- this was Blizzard had a long history of their games being delayed. You know, they they had the um, they certainly had the carte blanche to sit in their games as long as possible because they sold indefinitely. You know, they'd be at the top. Once a game, once a Blizzard game came out, it was at the top of the PC sales charts until the next one came out. Um, and at the time, I believe Vivendi was their corporate overlord. Uh, I, I believe this was, this was post Vivendi buyout. Um, and Vivendi had some various video game holdings, including Sierra online as well. If you, for any uh, old school point and click adventure game fans out there. Um, but so, you know, uh, Diablo 2 was was their previous release, and that was heavily delayed. Uh, of course, the release prior to that was um, StarCraft and Brood War. And, you know, StarCraft was, was heavily delayed to the point where it was one of the earliest examples of... It, it's... It was it was an internet meme before the term meme existed on the internet, right? Like, there was a whole community of people writing fanfic about StarCraft being delayed. It was called Operation Seawall, which you may be familiar with if you know the cheat codes for, for StarCraft, which stood for can't wait any longer. And it started off kind of lighthearted, then it devolved into weirdness, like people stalking the Blizzard parking lot to see who was working late and stuff like that. So <laughs> oh you can see that as far back as like 97, 98, there's some, there, there's some weirdness. We have a weird relationship forming between some of the customers and the company when it comes to their products. It's like, well, we don't want to wait for them, but we also want them to be released to a very high standard. And those things don't always go hand in hand. Um, and certainly at this point in time, you know, in, in, in Blizzard's history, they were, they were really establishing themselves in the PC market. Um, I w I would say between like 96 and 2004 and yeah, that resulted in, you know, multiple years of delays for Warcraft three and world of war. Well, and there's, um, there's no good way to encapsulate what the computer gamer culture was like at the time if you go back through like ign time machines it seems a little playboy-esque almost it's about like swimsuit girls and video games that's what the computer can do for you meanwhile the consoles are warring it out in the living rooms trying to you know win hearts and minds of families while also putting out maybe extreme violence of the time at least according to news articles in the early 2000s yeah i mean the industry was it was a lot different overall i i i'm not sure if the demographics of the people that were interested in games were radically different but man where those marketing dollars went certainly was you know and yeah you know pcs were kind of heavily marketed at maybe like 
um, older teens to young adult males. And um, they, they really kind of zeroed in on that audience specifically. And man, you know, as part of our discussion, you know, we've compiled some old press, advanced press and reviews that, that Reign of Chaos and Frozen Throne got when they were released. And it's absolutely wild reading this stuff based on, you know, through the lens of it being 2020 and, and having 18, 20 years of evolution of the hobby, the industry, and how we talk and write about games. I mean, the obviously people were excited about Warcraft 3, right? And, and I, I think that the excitement and the praise was genuine because it was a legitimately great game upon release. It was a legitimately revolutionary game upon release. And um, it was a very popular game, certainly. I mean, it, it was it was a game that people wanted to buy and play and check out and talk about and play online together. But that said, a lot of the advanced press and review press is is like fawning to a degree that it really feels more like PR fluff than any kind of actual games writing. It's just fun. It's it was really funny to me looking over the stuff because this is not how we talk about games in 2020. You know, it, it's, it's a completely different, it's almost like the, the games press of the day served a completely different function than it does today. And I, I think it's improved. Like, honestly, I, I think it's, it's changed for the better from where we were back then. Well, it, it's easy to forget that wow factor we had. I remember at the end of college for me, everyone ran to the TV to watch an iPhone ad and then that thing picked up a call at the end of it. And we all just went, oh my god. Did you, did you, it plays music and it's a phone. I, video games are never fathom such a thing. The, 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 the video games were moving so fast and advancing at such a pace that we didn't really have the words to critique it, nor did we have the sensibilities and time with those things to say what was good and what wasn't. It was just mind-blowing the entire way and it's it's wild to look at what was popular of that year of review uh release like if we go back we go back to 2002 this is lord of the rings two towers which i must say has aged wonderfully uh oh yeah outside of the maybe the like the helm's deep like giant battles uh you know it, it has its holes chamber of secrets harry potter Sp is this just plain old Spider-Man? This is the, yeah, the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man was released in 2002. The first, uh, the first Sony Spider-Man. So, you know, th this, this predates the beginning of the MCU by six entire years. Star um, Wars Episode 2 Attack of the Clones, which is actually referenced in yep. the reviews. It basically goes on to say, I don't need to convince you to go to the movie theater and see Attack of the Clones. So why am I going to convince you to buy Warcraft 3? It was mind-blowing to the reviewers that this game was as big as it was. And it went gold, which during pre-sales meant the world was ending. Nobody anywhere understood why anybody on the planet in 2000s would be pre-ordering a video game, let alone a computer video game that had been delayed twice. Yeah, um, it was one of, you know, it's weird because in, in a lot of ways, um, for, at least for for people who are into games and especially PC games, but I think I think the wider gaming audience, too, you know, it was definitely a cultural touchstone of, of that summer of 2002. Um, 
And, you know, part of it was the, the marketing campaign was really slick. And a couple, a couple things they did, I think, were important in building that awareness, building that excitement, and maybe drawing in some audience that wasn't your traditional RTS game, PC game audience. Um, one of the things that, that they did was if you pre-ordered the game, you got uh, a DVD <laughs> and the DVD had the cinematics from the game on it. And it also had a, um, a trailer for World of Warcraft that was... I It's something that I revisit frequently because it's awesome and it's also a complete fake like every single a- asset and everything they put together for the wow trailer on the warcraft 3 pre-order dvd was made up just for that trailer it had nothing to do with the game but um this was like a great way to be able to watch all the cinematics from the game in your dvd player on your tv man it looks so good but nothing you know full motion you know full screen video running on my computer didn't look that good in those days it looked way better on my dvd player so that was awesome. And they also included, um, I guess there were about uh, uh, eight, eight and a half by 11 or so um, prints of the Justin Tavrat artwork for each of the different boxes, right? Because there was four oh, boxes yeah, when it came that's out. Right. So it was, it was Taranda, it was Arthas, it was Thrall, and it was Kel'Thuzad. And just stunning, to this day, stunning pieces by Justin Tavrat. Um, and so, yeah, you got like an, an envelope that had, that had those in them and they looked great. Um, and you know, part of, part of, especially back in the, in the days of the boxed product, the box was a very important part of what you were buying when you, when you bought a blizzard product, they made it, they made a concerted effort. Legend has it that this was Alan Adham's thing was that I want our boxes to stand out. I want them to be made of the thickest cardboard. I want them to be full of stuff, you know, big, thick manuals and notepads and catalogs for other products. When you pull that box off the shelf, I want you to feel like you're getting your money's worth. And I think they nailed that with Warcraft three, just everything about the packaging design was really cool. And the fact that there was four different covers that all looked so great and all spoke to, you know, maybe different player tendencies like, Oh, do I like the elves or I like the undead or whatever. You could you could take your pick. Even the strategy guides came with different covers. You, you could, there were four different covers for the strategy guide because it was two thousand two. So you needed the strategy guide. I remember and, I was in Best Buy looking at all the different boxes. First of all, it's bizarre to think that the undead box is, I guess, Kelthazad, but it, it just seems like a random character when Arthas is on Frozen Throne, you know, later in the following year. But I didn't pick it up there. I got it at Target, and they only sold the orc box at Target, so I had an orc box in the end. Yeah, eventually, you know, as time wore on, I think they stopped printing the four different boxes. So outside of the release window, I think you had to settle for probably just the orc box. But um, one other thing, too, was this was one of the earliest collector's editions they ever did was for Reign of Chaos. Um, The only other one they did prior to that was um, Diablo 2. And the Diablo 2 CE is the only Blizzard CE that I don't have. Uh, I, I could have had it, but I balked at the price tag as a 19-year-old or whatever, and it just didn't happen. But so 
when when Warcraft three came around and there was a, a collector's edition skew, I was like, oh, I'm I'm all over that. And um, I remember going to uh, a video game store in my town at midnight, uh, you know, the the night of July second into July third, and and picking up my collector's edition. And man, it was just it's this bulky like faux leather thing, like slipcase style, with a giant hardback art book in there and. Actually, you know what? I think it was a softback art book for War Three. It was the WoW art books that were hardback, but this it was um, you know it was the first time they had done a uh, an art book inside of a Warcraft game, like a just a full book dedicated to nothing but the art. It had like the soundtrack CD. Um, it was it was a really cool package. And again, you know, we're talking about 2002 here. These days, the premium edition in the expensive packaging with all the extras for the hobbyist collector market, that's assumed you have to do that in, in a lot of cases just to break even selling your game at retail. But back then it was, it was something different. It wasn't the industry standard yet, you know? And I think um, when it comes to marketing and, and packaging the game, Blizzard innovated there and they certainly gave you a lot for your money, I think. And, um, that was sort of how they they built the brand and built their reputation with their customers is like, you know, when you give them your money, you're going to get a cool box with cool stuff in it and the game is going to be cool and they're going to support it for a long time. And um, that was really important, especially like the, you know, a lot of, a lot of, online games were really volatile especially in those days you know the market mm. was so much smaller so communities would migrate fast and if your game didn't work if you had a bad weekend and your servers were down maybe nobody ever plays that game again or if the new hot game in the genre comes out and you don't have any cool updates then you might just lose those players permanently and it was a pool of you know way fewer people than than we have today and like the MOBA and BR scenes and and MMO scenes it was it was cutthroat, man. If, if you if you lost your customers, they probably weren't coming back. Well, and coming from this, like my online experience was Battle.net for any experience for any period of time. That is where I lived and breathed StarCraft and all the custom matches. Probably my biggest at this point, maybe 2001 experience with online play would have been MSN Age of Empires and Aliens vs. Predator 2 which launched through the Game Spy machine. And that thing was broken. <laughs> yeah, Game Spy distributed a lot of, uh, you know, downloads and, and did a lot of uh, server hosting and stuff in those days. But, you know, we didn't, ha- we didn't have, like, uh, the big infrastructure. Battle.net was still in its infancy. Steam wouldn't even exist for, like, another year. Right. And so yeah. just there wasn't even a unified marketplace for, for PC games or, or even like several marketplaces like we have now. Um, you would, but you'd have to go buy the box at the store. Well, and we're not even talking like game. steam awareness until at least what 2007 with the orange box. And that kind of yeah. prompted you to actually participate in steam in any regard. Yeah, the first couple of years were like, well, you need this in order to play Half-Life 2. And that's what everybody did with it. And it was a hard sell even for the publishers to migrate their games there because it's like, we're not ready for digital distribution yet. The you know the market's not there. High-speed internet's not there. We need to sell the box. And um, 
you know, I, I think honestly, the shift away from from that model, from the boxed product and and the you know the retail shelf space, has hurt Blizzard in a modern sense. You know, because they capitalized on that so well in in that period of time because of the artwork. You know, they they had such talented artists on staff that would put this great looking packaging together, and you know, again, one one of the founders allegedly was was obsessed with making the package cool for the money. So I, I think that helped their product stand out a lot in those days, and you can't do that anymore. Well, when we look at 2000 games and the year 2002 in particular, nothing stands out too directly when we're looking at top selling. We're looking at Grand Theft Auto Vice City for PlayStation 2. We're looking at Madden NFL 2003. They're always a year in advance, so 2004 would follow that. Super Mario Advance on the GameCube or Game Boy Advance, Gran Turismo 3, and Medal of Honor. Though I have to say, the next year, 2003, is most shocking to me because there's Call of Duty, just Call of Duty, which is bizarre. Prince of Persia: Sands mm-hmm. of Time, Star Wars: Knights of the Old Republic. Like this came out in in such an insanely busy time in media. That the next year movies, Finding Nemo, Return of the King, Matrix Reloaded, which you know maybe isn't uh, critically acclaimed, but still these are big, big movies of the time and Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, it's weird because um kind of revisiting this and thinking about this stuff that was you know, the media space that we lived in that that Warcraft three was was spawned into. Like the stuff that was around back then has now been you know, rebooted or revisited or whatever. We've now seen uh, the the Star Wars trilogy that was out at the time conclude and then a new one begin and end in other movies and TV series. And I mean, the Spider-Man franchise has been through the ringer in, in the last 18 years. Um, you know, they're, they're shooting new Matrix movies as we speak. Uh, you know, the I don't know if that's like a, a, a reboot cool or something, but yeah, it's it's like Warcraft three. I mean, obviously, you know, you, I guess you could argue there've been like soft resets and reboots and stuff to Warcraft as a concept in the last eighteen years. But I feel like it's stayed relatively consistent. Like I, I feel like there is a clear through line from Reign of Chaos to Battle for Azeroth into Shadowlands. Like it feels like the same franchise to me. And even when you talk about you know where the Warcraft three team ended up after shipping frozen throne i think there's also a clear through line from frozen throne into wings of liberty and the starcraft 2 expansions and into heroes of the storm you know that it it feels there there is some kind of through line and cohesion there for me whereas um you know a lot of these like especially the like the, the games that that were sort of it's 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 so funny to look at the at some of these things because some of these franchises were were kings. I mean, I remember, you know, the the early update to Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, you know, sure. Uh, or I, I I remember I remember like those Prince of Persia um, updates, whatever you want to call them, that Ubi did in in the early aughts, just flying off the shelves. I remember what a big deal Max Payne was, and if you talk to like a a teenager today, they would have no idea what any of this stuff even is, probably because it's fallen so far off the cultural radar, you know. 
Well, and um, that, that multiplayer jank. I, when when we talk about, you know, we're talking about a campaign which led you in, but Battle.net on the other side of it was just so amazingly functional. Neverwinter Nights was out. Nearly impossible to play yeah. online. We had Morrowind, which was about as confusing as a computer game as you could possibly have during that day. There was nothing that quite existed like it before for modern senses, and it did not work as you expected it to. Battlefield 1942, amazing, like, land party game. But online was rather awful. Disconnected, and it would rebalance your teams on the go. If you were fighting on one side, it'd just pick you up, put you on the other side, so that it could be balanced when there were enough players. Jedi Knight 2. That had online play. Do we talk about that today? It, it, it's amazing that... <laughs> Man, we should, though. We, I spent I spent quite a bit of time in the Jedi Outcast multiplayer. Dude, holocron mode, man. Like, uh, <laughs> what, it, it would play that... Uh, there was, like, a slow motion mode that was just for, like, yeah. farting around this one room, and we all downloaded it. Uh, realistic it was, saber combat has been edited out over time of that game. Yeah, like the saber, the saber physics were like a cheat or a, an add on or something yeah. you needed, but cause it was T for teen. I mean, we, and yeah, we had, I think we had vastly different expectations of an online product in those days. It was, is really what it boils down to, you know? I mean, again, a lot of people were on, you know, sub broadband internet, even if they had cable or DSL or something, it wouldn't be what we consider broadband in a modern context. And, you know, the infrastructure just wasn't there. And, Netcode's tricky, and these were the early days of online multiplayer games as we currently know them. So it's funny; it was just the wild west, man. We just, we just, it was cool, so we did it. And it, to me, it never mattered if stuff was weird or didn't work, or or was, you know, if a service was unavailable or something, because it was, it was totally the wild west. You know, you'd have all these modders making add-ons and using ip that didn't belong to them and you make you know whatever skins you wanted for whatever characters in your online game of choice and um it was just again it was a completely different world and, and that that applied to all elements of the experience i think um and battle.net was you know, I think it was revolutionary in a way, and I think it kind of blazed a trail for modern online multiplayer. I would also say that um, an, another another contender in that realm back at, at this time was SegaNet. Mm. Sega was doing incredible things with online multiplayer. I mean, your Dreamcast had a phone modem in it, and you plugged your Dreamcast into a phone line, and you could play Fantasy Star Online with your friend in Japan and you could go shoot <laughs> monsters together, and it worked like it worked perfectly. It was but incredible. That fee, I never got to because of that fee and I was, you know, still in the house. Yeah. I mean, they even had, they even had a uh, voice chat. There was, I forget what the name of the game was, but there was some tank shooter that came with a microphone that plugged into where your VMU went and you could get integrated voice chat over a 56 K connection over SegaNet. So Sega and Blizzard were were sort of leading the charge. You know, a lot of the other, uh, a lot of the other platform holders in the space I, were a little tentative. I think there was no proof of concept really in the market. So, and I mean, even to this day, Nintendo is a little bit like, I don't know about this online thing. I don't think it's going to work out. But uh, <laughs> you know, back then everybody was was modern day Nintendo, right? They they didn't want to wade in there, but. But Blizzard and, and Sega showed how you could do it right, you know, and and you could you could have the supporting tech and you could have a, an experience that 
broadened the horizons of, of not just a particular game, but really the entire the entire concept of video games themselves. I loved Fantasy Star Online on the Dreamcast. I loved a lot of games on the Dreamcast. Twenty one ninety five per month for that Sega Net. That is <laughs> yeah, it was outrageous. <laughs> it was more than your AOL subscription. And when Warcraft Three was coming out, it's fascinating to look back and see Free Battle Net and how that was not only the standard to be upkept. It was a surprise still to the reviewers that this kind of service could be free. Yeah, it was um there there were it was it was a tough question at the time, right? We we hadn't we didn't have the model and it was it was a question of well do you are we going to let people play multiplayer games online without a surcharge? I mean, they might already be paying their their long distance bill in order to access the game. And, you know, over the years, what we've settled into is kind of a hodgepodge of all of these things, right there. The consoles tend to have, you know, yearly subscriptions or something in order for you to, to play online multi There's subscription based, you know, monthly PC games like wow, or, or other games like that. There's kind of freemium games where you pay money for stuff if you want to, but you can access it. If not, um, but I, you know, uh, in the early days of Battle.net, it, it's clear that Blizzard was, um, I don't want to say obsessed, but they took very seriously the idea of people playing the games together. And they wanted to make that as accessible as possible within reason. Like, obviously, especially back then, there were barriers as to why you might not be able to play with somebody online, like Ping, for example. But... um yeah, I mean they they could have they could have included like a separate purchase for like a BattleNet version or you know uh, the multiplayer add-on or included some kind of surcharge and I don't think it would have been out of bounds with the state of the industry at the time but I think the fact that they didn't like obviously it was good for Warcraft 3 and I think it also created like it, it helped to create a set of expectations for you know, for the industry going forward, um, it, the the multiplayer is the thing that keeps the game alive. It's the thing that makes people feel like they're getting their money's worth once they've completed the curated content that they paid for. So, um, you know, it became it it became sort of an an expected part of your boxed purchase with a with a game with a multiplayer component. There were several things that were also expected to come out with the game in that time period. Blizzard had already proved that it did map editors with StarCraft, so that came as no surprise, but people were happy to have it. Unit formations weren't new and a feature of other RTSs. Waypoints from buildings, attack move camp uh, commands, and the mini-map were all just expected to be there. But that also means there's a lot of things that Warcraft 3 did that was entirely new. One of these was that combination of the RTS and RPG that equaled the RPS term. The, the role-playing aspect <laughs> on top of the RTS was a tough sell for a lot of people when they first saw the game. And upkeep, as well as the farming of the units and lanes, this is all a huge reaction to 
Starcraft being too explosive, but also being way too slow in the early game. Warcraft 3 was a direct note to Starcraft that everyone agreed you were too boring at the start of the game and you lost your armies too quickly later on. Yeah, you know, something like upkeep might seem like a strange um, a strange feature to have in the game. You know, like, oh, well, how come the bigger my army gets, the worse my economy becomes? And it's occurred to me recently, just, just with this recent playthrough, that upkeep is kind of genius game design because it puts a pretty tight focus on your hero characters, even in the campaign. You know, if you could just build these massive armies, then it wouldn't matter as much if you had a hero unit or not. Like, especially in a campaign, if if you just have strong macro and you make a huge maxed out army and just roll over the, the AI, then your heroes don't matter at all. And I mean, you can still certainly play that style in the campaign, but um, it, it's... I would argue that in most cases it's more expedient and fun to have a smaller army and more focus on your hero units because there's just so much gameplay there, you know, and it's it's gameplay that certainly wasn't seen in, in any other game in the genre before Reign of Chaos came out. It forcibly kept all those armies low, and by giving people the heroes so early on, it prevented rushing which was something that was constantly and still happens today in StarCraft games, and it's something that the audiences of the time wanted to avoid. In order to make sure you had something to do if the enemy didn't rush, they added the creeps, and you would farm up your hero before fighting with the enemy side, which made everything a lot slower, so heal spells or slows or stuns mattered more in this environment. You could actually land those spells rather than panic casting them as we sort of do in StarCraft 2. Funny that we kind of went back that way, but StarCraft's its own game with its own legacy. Of the Void. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, I don't think that um I don't I, I think that it was smart that Warcraft 3 remained its own thing. And I mean there are there are certainly echoes of Warcraft 3 in the Heart of the Swarm campaign, but you know, the multiplayer they kept they kept its own thing and i think i think that it worked to give starcraft 2 a separate identity you know as, as the successor to warcraft 3 uh, and i think it also it had this kind of strange effect of like preserving the coolness factor of warcraft 3 War warcraft 3 is its own beast in the space in a lot of ways and if you if you watch like high-level multiplayer, it looks a lot different than if you're used to watching StarCraft, you know, and, and the timing, the pacing is different, the concerns are different. Um, it's really it's really a very unique entry in Blizzard's series of RTS games. And, I mean, I on the other side of this, you know, not, not to paint it as, as something that's universally beloved. I mean, there's some people that all of these things were big turnoffs. They didn't want to deal with microing the hero unit and, you know, the, the importance of the hero units on the map in multiplayer compared to you know, traditional base building and army comp. And, you know, I think it's just different flavors. And, and I think that the different flavors add gameplay texture. And um, I think if Warcraft 3 was essentially 
like Brood War 2 or some kind of half step between Brood War and Wings of Liberty, but set in Azeroth, I don't think it would have had the staying power. I mean, obviously we're talking about the game in the context of a remaster and um, a renewed investment in the eSport, but you know, the Warcraft 3 competitive scene never went away. You know, people were still playing it on the old client up until a couple years ago. They at least patched in widescreen support, you know. Um, obviously, the scene is small. It's niche. It's very dedicated. But Warcraft 3 never stopped, even after all this time. You know, for 18 years, people have been playing competitive Warcraft 3. And I think... And and I should point out, like, internationally, too. It's It's maintained a scene... In China, it's maintained a scene. In Europe, it's maintained a scene in North America. Um, and I I think it probably would have gone more the way of Brood War everywhere except Korea, you know, in the wake of StarCraft II's release. It would have just been replaced by StarCraft II if it, if it didn't have this weird edginess, this thing that makes it different. And, and difference, differences can be scary to some people. And and other people embrace them. How interesting that we, with the editor, edited down Warcraft Three to be more RPG, and eventually turned into things like Dota or uh, hero questing. Yeah, um, I think it's it's funny because, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is because it's impossible to separate your brain from a world where MOBA exists. But just, you know, picking up Warcraft 3 again recently for the first time in a few years to play through the campaign, it's like, it strikes me immediately how much I just want to dig in with the hero units. And I just want my hero to do everything, you know, and I want to level them up and unlock all the all the new spells and spell ranks and get all the cool items and just one-shot all the Murlocs with Chain Lightning. And, you know, it's, it's like that that loop is so immediately appealing um, that it's, it's, it's almost distracting in a way I'm finding because I don't want to, I'm finding myself not wanting to really do the base building and macro. I just want to zoom around with my hero and shoot stuff. Sure. You know, (laughs) Um, build that tight little army that can do it all. Yeah. uh, And um, I think one thing that's cool too about it is, I, I think a, a, another shift. Uh, I don't. I don't have any data in front of me, so this is totally from the hip. But one thing that strikes me playing Warcraft Three is it feels like upgrades research faster than in like Starcraft Two, for example. So it feels like you can. It feels more worth it to have a small group of units and power them up than to just pump units out and get upgrades when you can squeeze them in. And um, the. I mean, the fights are so protracted. You know. You and and it's cool because it gives you more micro opportunities. You don't have to be, um, you don't have to be an APM hero to grab that, that one unit that's a little too far out and in distress and pull it into the back line and heal it up and get it back out there. And there's something really cool about that. Um, I don't really know that like a Warcraft four would fly in the marketplace today. And if anything, I think a lot of what we've seen over the last month or so has indicated that it probably wouldn't fly. But um, I there there's just there's there's a real uh, 
deliberateness to the to the pacing of the combat in Warcraft Three that makes it really interactive to I think uh, a a wide a wider base of players. Like it's just the pacing, the rhythm of it makes it easier to find the spots where you can impact the combat. Also new in 2002 was the idea of subgrouping through tab. This is where you control more than one spellcaster unit and you want to tab through them so you can select their abilities. A day and night cycle quests instead of side quests, basically that you would come across your bonus quests inside the game rather than have them be their own maps or another level you had to load. And of course, as the reviews put it, the cutting edge cutscenes as rewards, though reviews did mention that next to the colorful and sometimes janky character models, they felt totally out of place. Hmm. How how interesting <laughs> as we sit here uh, post release of Reforged and kind of the turmoil that we've had over these IGCs, apparently Apparently, these IGCs have been a problem for a lot longer than just since last month. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably no way around the fact that the IGCs were, they're primitive, right? The fully rendered cinematics were state-of-the-art. They still look pretty good. You know, they're, they're up-resed in Reforged so that they look nice on your modern display. And... Yeah, you know, are the are the models a little bit low poly compared to what we'd expect today? Certainly. But I mean, this was like Hollywood quality in 2002. It was mind blowing what these things look like. And they're so powerfully directed. You know, they tell the story so well. They're so evocative that um, I, I think tech aside, that that's part of why they stand the test of time. The in-game cinematics like they help tell the story and they help pace out the missions and they frame what you're doing very well, but they are not story vehicles in and of their own right. They're a gameplay device, right? They like they're, they're an instruction manual for the game and it's a necessity that they include story because you're literally like playing through the story. But I think that's probably where the friction comes in because you can't take the cutscene out of context and watch it and go, that was awesome because it wasn't awesome. It was the thing that helped you get to the next part of your of your campaign mission. Well, so, when, when we're talking the in-game like scenes voice acted, everyone in 2002 was rather impressed with the full voice acting. But they did not like, and these were the big anti-review points, there was no lip syncing on the character portraits. And zooming in on the 3D in-game characters felt awful. In that way, Blizzard made sort of a miniatures D&D game sort of style thing where Arthas would turn staley back and forth, and it worked. But that doesn't mean that people at the time expected more. They'd, they'd seen some already great video games at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think I would have to say that the number one thing that would spring to mind when it comes to, like, IGCs, like, like, real-time rendered in-engine cutscenes in video games like it's 2002 metal gear solid 2 has been released right like we have seen the cinematic potential of game engines on full display um that game the early metal gear solid games changed 
the entire world in terms of how we told stories through video games and, and what we kind of expected. And, you know, Metal Gear Solid 2 had a much different uh, aim in mind and a much different goal with its IGCs than Warcraft 3 did, certainly. Um, and also, I think I think it, it bears repeating that this was Blizzard's first 3D game. And, you know, the models... There had to be the engine had to support a lot of moving characters on screen at once, right? If you're playing a console game, if you're playing Splinter Cell or something, well, your Xbox knows that it has to render, you know, exactly this many characters. The developers know exactly what specs they're working with, etc. You know, Blizzard's trying to sell Warcraft 3 to as many people as they possibly can. Blizzard traditionally and to this day kind of errs on the side of um, uh, accessibility. So they would rather have a game look nice based on art direction than than sheer tech because they want you to be able to play it on almost any computer. And so imagine what the low-end machine of 2002 looked like, you know? Um, and you had to be able to make these armies that could have, you know, 100 different units in them, and they had to crash together and uh, on the internet, and it all had to work. So, yeah, the models are low-poly, and... There's not a lot of animations, which is another thing that is uh, blatantly obvious in the wake of Reforged's release. And the engine's not really built for storytelling, you know? And um, that said, I think they did an admirable job with it because the story itself is so compelling that it's like, if you're if you're focused on the fact that are, you can you can count all eighteen polygons in Arthas's model, and his mouth flap doesn't match up with his portrait. I think I think your efforts are a little misdirected. It's it's about you know it's yeah. about taking the ride. If you if you go to Disneyland, you're on Pirates of the Caribbean. You don't care that you could you could tell the pirates are animatronic, right? Like you just want to enjoy the ride. And to me, that's that's like what the Warcraft Three campaign has always been. Well, and there's a part of your brain as a, as a fan of the game that goes, well, at least it's not flapping like x character that's awful now that over there was an awful model luckily that was just lord garethos have you not arthas our main character but the graphical inconsistencies did stand out to people in the past and there was some critique that from character to character the standard wasn't the same that the terrain looked better and was better orchestrated than the characters themselves and when you get to gameplay people were upset that uh Undead was too much like Zerg in the way the buildings worked, and that they had heard this story before. They, from knowing Blizzard, knew how the whole Kerrigan gets corrupted and Arthas gets corrupted, Bizd goes, and they were a little bored by that, even in 2002. Yeah, it's kind of funny because like, I don't think anybody would ever... Nobody would ever accuse Blizzard of being hyper original when it comes to their narratives or anything. Right? They wear their influences on their sleeve. And I think the ethos has always really been more about presenting things in, in a cool package and making things exciting versus being highly innovative when it comes to telling stories and developing characters. And I mean, it's kind of funny because the the criticisms of, of Warcraft 3 being narratively too similar to StarCraft remind me of 
you know, early builds like E3 builds of Starcraft being criticized as being orcs in space. Um, you know, it's the same company. They, these are the games that they make, right? On a certain level, it's it's just like it, it's a lot of the same personnel in, especially in in these cases. And um, I, I don't I don't want to be so callous as to say what do you expect, but you know, they they were certainly like in a particular groove here, and um, it's it's just to me it's it's funny because I mean you can you can kind of take it or leave it, and I I think that the the Warcraft three story is really stand out to me because of how cool the characters are primarily and, and just how encompassing it is in terms of different concepts and settings. But um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, a traditional yarn about like the, you know, the fall story. Yeah. Like it's very similar to the character thing. It's, it's basically Darth Vader, right? It's, it's, it's not like it's, some innovation that nobody had ever thought of before in the history of, you know, fiction. Well, they did raise it. They made it more complicated. Arthas is a little in turmoil about Stratholm. He doesn't, you know, his friends leave, and then he's still right when he purges it because they were infected. Malganus was running around there. And you can really see that up, how they sort of took that critique and applied it to Frozen Throne. With Frozen Throne particularly what's happening with, like, Illidan, is very complicated. And the hunt you have to go on with the Jailer and all this sort of business back and forth is way more Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones was really cooking in our social spheres. Yeah, I mean, I I think I would would agree with that. And I think when you move from Rain into Frozen Throne, and then Frozen Throne is sort of the... It's the direct predecessor to like Burning Crusade. And a lot of that stuff still doesn't make 100% sense to me. And it's also been retconned a fair bit over the last several years. And I don't use that word in a derogatory way. It's just they had good reasons to clean up the continuity. It was messy. Um, it was it was a big mess. And I, I'm not sure that what the original idea was, was conveyed very well through the gameplay of especially Burning Crusade, you know, that, I, I think Burning Crusade was supposed to be the big capper of like, okay, well, what's the next part of Illidan's story after Frozen Throne? And it, to me, initially, it was like, huh? Why is this happening? I thought and he it, was it dead, a- honestly. I, I didn't yeah, think we it, had to tell his story. I thought he died right there at the base of Ice Crown. Yeah, it, it took it took a long time for that stuff to really be, you know, laid out in a satisfactory way. So... You know, I guess the, that's those are the uh, the pitfalls, right? Of of trying to tell these these grand stories with these larger than life characters across multiple different mass media products is sometimes the finer details get a little bit lost, and sometimes you go to the well one too many times. But I think, I mean, for me, the 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 thing that has always just worked is. It's the characters, it's the character design, and it's sort of the the palette that is involved in in bringing this world to life. You know, each of the different cultures is very distinct. It has its own flavor, and it's very well realized within um within Warcraft Three, even which is you know it's it's sort of like the opposite of an immersive game, right? You're like above the battlefield. You're sort of omnipotent in terms of your perspective. Um, I, th- I do think it's funny that, you know, we dug up some some criticisms that the environments look so much better than the characters. And 
I think I think that's also applicable to World of Warcraft. You know, the the world has always been the main character of that game, and um, the the immersion is, is kind of what that game banks on in a lot of ways. And um, I mean, if you think about it, in an RTS game, you're looking at the terrain constantly, so it makes sense that if you get a budget, what's going to look good that you you throw it towards the terrain because that's what players are interacting with. You're trying to build there. You're trying to move your units there. You're trying to see where the other army's units are and and what's happening. The terrain is everything in an RTS. So um, it's kind of, I mean, obviously you're dealing with, you know, uh, rationed resources here. You know, you can't, not everything can look as good as everything else in any game, even, even to this day with, you know, heroes of the storm. How much do we hear about, limitations of of what they can do with characters and and animation rigs and stuff in order to ensure a smooth gameplay experience this is i mean this is making video games in essence you know it's 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 all a matter of apportioning your resources and they just had a lot less to go around back then when we get to frozen throne it's still a boxed product world and that was Almost more of a balance patch, if you weren't playing the campaign, that is. That released with it lower cost buildings and units to make the matches go by a little quicker, actually. Early game defensive structures to still reduce that rushing in this particular hero rushing down more. And I remember the Blade Master being the big uh, problem with that particular bit of it. And online multiplayer was improved with player clans and automated tournaments at that time. Hey, maybe we could get some clans and automated tournaments someday. In, in any game, in, uh, yeah. In, in some other games that we're playing lately. It, it, um, it That's always been such a weird part of all of Blizzard. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that they put out a game and they go, do you like it? And you go, yes, where's the things <laughs> that, that make it a full game? And they go, oh, Gosh, we don't have one of those. Like, we don't have a guy that makes that sort of thing. From our perspective, yeah. from our consumer perspective, it is very easy for us to say, how how did that go missing? And it was missing here in the past. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's history. It's funny because it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same in some ways. And, you know, how, how do how do they release these types of games without clan support at launch? I'm I'm not sure. Um but like it's obviously a feature that people like and and want to use, but yeah, um, I forget I forget what the price tag on Frozen Throne was when it came out. I think it was probably about thirty bucks or so, maybe forty bucks. Yeah, Whereas like the original lower. game would have retailed for sixty at release, so it was not. I don't believe it was a full price game, and it did require you know that you had Reign of Chaos in order to use it. But um, yeah, it's funny because. These were the days where an expansion pack on the box could mean one of many different things, right? Like we, in a modern context, one of the only things that's that's called an expansion is when World of Warcraft releases a, a new retail update, right? Like it's not really used very much in, in parlance in the industry these days, Um but back then, like every PC game had expansions, sometimes multiple expansions. And a lot of times it wasn't even the original developer that was no. making the expansions for these games. 
but the publisher just wanted the cash. It's like, hey, we can sell you some new features, some new content. We'll get some other studio to to work on this, uh, you know, this IP that we hold, and we'll pop it in the game and we'll sell it to you for twenty or thirty bucks, and off we go. And so you never really knew what you were going to get. Um, I think uh, there was there was a, a expansion for the original Diablo that was not a product of blizzard or blizzard north um and i think that was probably where blizzard went you know what if if uh and i think this was the vivendi days i could i could be wrong so please somebody write in and correct me if i'm wrong about this this may have been slightly pre-vivendi but i think they realized like well if our publishing arm and our corporate masters are just going to put out expansions anyway then we better do it ourselves and i mean you think of you know post diablo what was the next uh blizzard game was starcraft and what was the expansion for starcraft it was brood war you know and that kind of set the standard for like what is what does it mean what are you getting for your money when you buy that box that says expansion pack and um i mean it's not those like custom campaign things in there that were like not voiceovered, but they were official mm-hmm. or uh, weird stories about like some wraith <laughs> pilot. <laughs> I remember going through, I mean, really for me, it was never winter nights. That's where not a blizzard yeah. game, but that was a game where I went after the first expansion. I was like, what are we doing here? Yeah. You, you added prestige classes. You completely changed the story. I, I, I don't even know what's going on. I'm, I'm not buying three more of these. <laughs> Yeah, that was you know that was PC gaming back then, and uh, it, it meant exp- expansion pack meant something different depending on which game you were buying it for, or even which one in the series of expansions you were buying for the game you were playing. Um, I think you know there were there were some there were some other good examples. It's not like Frozen Throne was the only good one, but um, it was it was definitely an indicator that. When you when you bought that Blizzard box again, going back to the box, and, and this had the the corrupted Arthas on the box, right? It was yeah. the it was the the before and after with the Arthas box for Rain. You know, you were getting value for your money, and you know, there's a, there's an essentially an entire like sequel worthy campaign in in my estimation inside of Frozen Throne. In addition to the multi, I mean, the multiplayer changes could have really been a patch, but, but no, but you're not uh, wrong about the story itself. There, it was clear that they made an effort, and I really appreciate it as a gameplay device. Their effort to introduce why a unit existed, why there's a spell breaker, why Kael'thas is the way he is, why are there Naga levels in the Night Elf campaign? Like, it was really cool to experience so many different things. But it also meant, ah, of course, here's our water level where you have to have the dragon hawks. And it just kind of sucked at a certain extent. I had to complete it. I had to see it to the end back then. And I loved all the models it brought to the editor and the games yeah. I made and the games I played. And that's where that legacy continued. Yeah, it was, um, it, it, it sort of, it's funny because Rain... You know, Rain took the Warcraft mythos to a different level. We talked last week a lot about Medivh and specifically Medivh. I feel like we talked a lot about Medivh in the context of the first war, you know, and 
like there's a lot of big concepts on display there, but it's ultimately rather small in scope compared to what we're talking about when we move into rain. And Frozen Throne was sort of like more of a a continuation or like a direct follow up, like an epilogue to Rain in, in a lot of ways, more so than something that you know. It, it, Rain of Chaos just just expanded the whole mythos so much, just blew it all up into this thing that could then live on for years and years through different multimedia. Um, and I think Frozen Throne was really the first beneficiary of that, you know, and. Um, it also, but it it also in its own right brought in like you were saying like these concepts that, I mean, how much mileage have they gotten out of Frozen Throne related stuff in WoW in the last three four years in Heroes of the Storm, um, mm. even in um, uh, you know to a lesser degree in in Hearthstone like anything that touches Warcraft it it has it has some Frozen Throne DNA, and um, it's it's just it's it's funny how how these two games have, have just cast such a, a long shadow over the years. Well, and it, it, as a consumer, as a, let's go uh, a story critique. It's really powerful that they chose to make the orc campaign, what it was in frozen throne. They didn't have a story for them. It was, this was about continuing the, the, the threads that were let op- open and untied getting to Arthas, to Ice Crown, exploring the Night Elves. But they just didn't have a thing to do with the orcs, so they made this entire Durotar WoW light kind of game that still was a functional game in its own right. And while it was kind of wacky and bizarre with running around with Chen, it, it worked. And to make that strong of a choice in an established game is pretty incredible. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it showed that, you know, Warcraft as a concept, as a franchise, had aspirations beyond the RTS shelf in the video game store, you know? And, um, I mean, I think one thing that for me as, as a customer that, uh, you know, I probably especially back then really set Blizzard's products apart was that they were they were well-made and they were well-supported. Um, they had this beautiful art direction that made me want to learn everything I could, the world that was being depicted. But I think the number one thing that came across is that sense of fun. You know, they didn't, not everything was taken seriously. Not every, it's a video game, right? And, and the, the people who made it, it was clearly made with, and they wanted to have fun with it. They wanted to inject their own personality and their own values into what they were making. And I think that comes through in, you know, the orc uh, campaign that isn't a campaign in Frozen Throne. And I, I think it comes through uh, certainly in other elements of Warcraft 3 as well. But I think to me, like that willingness to do something maybe a little bit goofy or silly in the context of a high fantasy, you know, war game. I, I think to me that is what Warcraft is really all about. You know, it's it's that it's that personality and that that spectrum that it, it can inha- it can inhabit all these different thematic spaces. Fun is fun, but we need a little bit of drama with our fun, and I think I captured that well even back in the day, and it was respected for doing so. 
and I hope you all have enjoyed this little trip back through 2000 to 2003. Maybe it gave you some perspective to use in your ongoing conversations, but of course we'll continue to talk about Warcraft 3 here at Reforged Radio. Jason Lucas, where can people find you on the interwebs for more content you make? The best place to find me is on Twitter. You can find me over at Shieldwald. I'm always talking Warcraft stuff, whether it's WoW or Warcraft 3 or whatever else I'm doing. You can also find me streaming World of Warcraft over on twitch.tv slash Shieldwald. And of course, if you want to hear uh, a weekly wrap-up of everything happening in and around WoW, check out the Starting Zone podcast. You can find that at thestartingzone.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, Spencer Downey and I recapping the week that was and setting the table for the week that will be in World of Warcraft every Tuesday. You can find everything about the show over at kyleferguson.com. Two S's in Ferguson. Use the contact link to send those messages to the show. We look forward to rejoining you for some Reforge talk next week. We'll see you then.